Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 50 called All Quiet on the Eastern Front. In the last episode, we heard about how the German tribes were effectively taking over the Western Empire. And in this episode, I want to look at what was happening in the East, where things were going much, much better than in the West. If you recall, back in May 408, the Eastern Emperor Arcadius had died and he was succeeded by his seven-year-old son, Theodosius II. Now, his first minister was Flavius Anthemius, who was very capable, unlike most of his counterparts in the West. His most famous achievement was building the Theodosian Walls of Constantinople, which truly changed history since they resisted all their attackers right until the Fourth Crusade of 1204, which battered its way in, in fact, through the sea walls rather than the land walls. And the land walls were so strong that it was not until 1453 that the Ottoman Turks finally blasted a hole through them using cannons. But the key question is why did the Eastern Empire avoid the collapse that happened in the West? Historians have long debated this issue and it's a subject we'll come back to in more detail. But let's say at this point there were three key reasons. The first was, of course, the Theodosian Walls, which we've just discussed. I suggest the second was simply geography. And by this, I mean the Bosphorus Strait, which conveniently separated the Middle East from Europe. While the Western Empire suffered from having a hugely long frontier with Germania along the Rhine and indirectly along the Danube, which was the Eastern Empire's responsibility, but which gave the barbarians access to the West, the Bosphorus effectively blocked barbarian attacks into the Eastern Empire's prosperous Middle Eastern provinces because you needed a fleet to get across it. It's a bit similar to the British Channel, which stopped foreign conquest by lots of would-be invaders and made British history so different from continental European history. An excellent example was with the Goths, for after they won the Battle of Adrianople in 378, they couldn't break into Anatolia simply because they couldn't cross the Bosphorus. So the east was safe, and that was why they headed west and eventually ended up sacking Rome in AD 410. The third reason is much less talked about, but seems crucially important to me, This was peace with Persia. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast before, you know that in the 4th century, there was an almost perpetual state of war with Persia, and Armenia had been fought over for centuries without either side seeming to gain any real advantage from it. But these endless Persian wars reduced considerably in the 5th century. Why? The answer lies with the Huns because they appeared along Persians' eastern frontier in the 5th century. This was the area which today runs from Turkmenistan south through Afghanistan and Pakistan. They were different from the so-called European Huns who dominated the Roman Empire in the 4th and 5th centuries. In fact, there seem to have been several Hunnic tribes battling the Persians in the east, first the Kidarites and later the Hephthalites, also known as the White Huns. 
The benefit to the Eastern Romans was that Persia was so distracted by the Huns that it avoided war with Rome for most of the 5th century. For example, there was no equivalent of Shapur II who created such problems for the Romans in the 4th century. This meant that not only was the eastern half of the empire more safe and prosperous, but it also started to exert a greater influence over the West. So, let's get back to our narrative. Now, Anthemius effectively ruled the Eastern Empire until his death in 414. We don't know what he died of, but the assumption is that it was natural causes rather than foul play. He was succeeded by another capable minister called Aurelian. And since Theodosius II was only 13 years old in 414, his older sister, Elia Pulcheria, who turned 16 that year, was proclaimed Augusta and took over as regent. She was a much tougher cookie than her brother and became the de facto ruler of the East. She was also religious and took a vow of virginity, although the motivation for this was almost certainly her own ambition, since, being an imperial princess, she would otherwise have been pursued by an endless stream of suitors looking to marry her and advance their own careers rather than hers. So, once she took this vow, she could enjoy holding power in her own right, provided, of course, she could continue to dominate her younger brother. Pulcheria's brother, Theodosius II, was not quite as useless as their father had been. Although, like his father, he was said to be weak-willed, unlike him, he was also said to be intelligent, with an interest in books about religion, as well as natural science and astronomy. He was also meant to be gentle and compassionate, something we don't often hear in the 5th century Roman Empire. He was also getting older, and in 421 he reached the age of 20, when he should become emperor in his own right. This was a threat to Pulcheria, so she decided to play matchmaker and find him a wife who would both dominate him and also be subservient to her. Eventually, she found a suitable young woman called Elia Eudocia. The story told to us by the chronicler John Malalas is that Eudocia appeared in Constantinople as the daughter of a wealthy Athenian who had disinherited her, giving his wealth to her brothers. She sought justice in Constantinople, and Pulcheria heard her case and was instantly impressed with her beauty, intelligence, and good education. She became best friends with her, and thinking no doubt that she could still control her if she married her brother, she told Theodosius to hide behind a curtain and take a peek at her stunningly good-looking new friend. The matchmaking worked. Theodosius instantly fell in love, and they were married in 421. Our chronicler goes on to say that Eudocia was also a thoroughly nice person, as shown by her treatment of her brothers, for when they heard she'd married the emperor, not surprisingly, they were worried she might take revenge for disinheriting her. But, in fact, as the kind sister she was, she invited them to her wedding, where they were promoted to prefects. 
So looking at the two halves of the empire at this time, I always get the feeling they existed in two completely different worlds. The West must have been a very brutal and unpleasant place to live in, with a breakdown of law and order, particularly in Britain, Gaul and Spain. For example, Britain is famous for orbiting completely out of the civilised world at this time. Indeed, there are no surviving records of what even happened there for the next 200 years. Historians think the last legionaries left sometime between 406 and 410. After that, the archaeological cupboard is bare, suggesting that people in Britain reverted to a prehistoric level of existence, without stone housing, roof tiles, coins, and even without pottery made using a wheel. These things only started appearing again in the 7th century when the island was firmly dominated by the Saxons. In contrast, in the Eastern Empire, life was lived at a very sophisticated level with a good deal of intellectual debate and dispute, especially between pagans and Christians. One story recorded by our sources is worth relating because it provides a fascinating insight into the culture and mentality of 5th century Romans in the East. It concerns the patriarch of Alexandria, Cyril, who was, in the words of the historian J.B. Berry, quote, an ecclesiastical tyrant of the most repulsive type, end quote. Now, Alexandria was a teeming city with perhaps 600,000 inhabitants, and it was a place of violent conflict between Christians, Jews and pagans. But it was also very sophisticated with a flourishing university in which a woman called Hippatia became widely renowned for her intellect and beauty. She taught mathematics and philosophy and did not hold back from praising the pagan works of Plato and Aristotle. This infuriated Cyril, who had a band of followers called the Parabolani, who were fanatical Christians, whose official job was tending to the sick, but who in fact preferred to beat up pagans and Jews. They particularly resented Hippatia, and one day, when she was walking home from the university, they ambushed her, dragged her into a church, and killed her. This outrage became as controversial among the chattering classes in the Eastern Empire as, say, the Capitol Hill riots in modern America. Otherwise, all was pretty quiet on the Eastern Front, so to speak. While the West was collapsing under the weight of barbarian invasion, the East only had one minor war with Persia in 421-22, occasioned by Persian persecution of their Christians. Pulcheria was a keen Christian, as I mentioned, and she told the Persian Shah, Bahram V, to stop persecuting Persian Christians, otherwise the Romans would invade. Bahram would not be bossed about, and so the Romans did invade, fortunately for them, led by a competent general called Ardabor, who we will hear more about shortly. He defeated the Persians, but Pulcheria was forced to sue for peace because the Huns started to threaten the Danube. The Persians accepted this, peace was restored, and possibly Bahram turned down the Christian persecution a bit. So far, the Eastern and Western empires had kept their distance, 
But this was all about to change because in August 423, the Western Emperor Honorius died. What had been happening in the West? Let's have a quick recap. If you recall from the last episode, the Magister Militum, Constantius, had done a reasonable job keeping the Western Empire from complete disintegration. His main achievement had been to get the barbarians to fight each other rather than to unite into one supergroup. The Visigoths had fought the Burgundians in Gaul and fought the Vandals and Alans in Spain, and in 418 as compensation. Constantius had given them Aquitaine in the southwest of Gaul as their own kingdom. Constantius's success was so great that not only did he win the hand of Galla Placidia, but on the 8th of February 421, he was even promoted to be co-Augustus with Honorius. This was an extraordinary recognition of his achievements. But less than seven months later, on the 2nd of September, he was dead. The cause remains a mystery. We don't even know his age. It's possible he was in his 50s or 60s, and he probably died of natural causes. Certainly no foul play was suspected by the chroniclers of the time. The problem was his death created a power vacuum. Honorius was the Western Emperor, but no one took him seriously, apart from his chickens, of course. The race was now on to dominate him, just as Constantius had done. The first off the blocks was his sister, Galla Placidia. She was in a powerful position. Not only had she been promoted to an Augusta when her husband Constantius was made Augustus, but she also had a son, Valentinian, as the potential heir to the throne. But what happened next has long mystified historians. Our principal source say that she and her brother befriended each other, causing onlookers to wonder if incest was being committed. Quote, their immoderate pleasure in each other and their constant kissing on the mouth caused many people to entertain shameful suspicions about them, end quote. However, this behaviour did not last long. Quote, this affection was replaced by such a degree of hatred that fighting often broke out in Ravenna and blows were delivered on both sides. End quote. It's difficult to know what exactly was going on. We should remember that Placidia was much more intelligent than her brother. Perhaps she hoped to dominate him early on by being friendly, but when she overdid it, he smelt a rat. Or perhaps Placidia was a victim of her rivals at court. Theodosius was, after all, easy to manipulate, and no doubt her enemies were whispering in his ear. Whatever happened, in late 422, Placidia left Ravenna, either exiled by Honorius or fleeing his unwelcome advances, whichever source you want to believe, and arrived in Constantinople with her two children. Her timing could not have been worse, for within months on the 15th of August 423, Honorius died of edema or swelling, probably because of heart failure, a condition which ran in the Theodosian family. If she'd stayed in Ravenna, she would presumably have been able to assert the rights of her son Valentinian with herself as regent. 
But with her far away in Constantinople, there was now scope for someone else to seize power. And that's exactly what happened. In Italy, the Magister Militum Castinus made a play for power with a senior minister called John. The Roman Senate declared John emperor. As was the case with most Western usurpers, John didn't want to fall out with Constantinople and sent an embassy to Theodosius and Pulcheria, offering to work together. Pulcheria was still running the show in the East and took the bold decision to reject this proposal. She was helped in this decision by the governor of North Africa, Bonifacius, who chose to side with Constantinople and not Rome. North Africa was a vitally important territory, not only because of its wealth, which had so far survived barbarian destruction, but also, of course, because it was the granary of Italy. And thank you to a listener who pointed out that in the last episode I mistakenly called the grain sent from North Africa corn, which is of course wrong since corn was unknown in Europe until it was discovered in the Americas by Christopher Columbus. North Africa was actually exporting wheat and barley. Apologies for mixing up my cereals there. And yet again, it was this grain supply which proved vital because Bonifacius cut it off putting tremendous pressure on the usurpers, who responded by sending a fleet with their best troops, including Hunnic mercenaries, to Carthage. But Bonifacius defeated them, and Rome was left starving. What remained of Roman Gaul also broke away when the Visigoths, who were the real rulers of Gaul, also rejected the usurpers. So, John and Castinus were left in Italy in a pretty bad situation with the depleted remains of the Italian legions and not much else. Theodosius and Pulcheria decided the time was now right to re-establish eastern sway over the west and dispatched an army and fleet for Italy led by the general Ardabur and his son Aspar. They wanted to put Galla Placidia's son Valentinian on the throne. Interestingly, they'd refused to recognise Placidia and her husband Constantius when they were promoted to being co-emperor and empress with Honorius. Historians have never really understood why, but presumably it was because they were suspicious of Constantius and thought he was trying to lord it over the rightful emperor with Theodosian blood in his veins, who was of course Honorius. Would they have been right in thinking that? Absolutely yes. But now Honorius was gone. Placidia was their closest relative and best bet, so she went with the Eastern Army heading towards Italy through Illyria. The Eastern Army was far stronger than what remained of the Western one and it captured Aquilaire at the top of the Adriatic and began marching towards Ravenna, where the usurper John was. But then disaster struck. Ardabor was sailing with the Eastern Fleet for Ravenna to make a joint naval and land attack on the Western capital when a violent storm blew up, wrecking many of the boats, including the one he was on. He was shipwrecked close to Ravenna and captured. The usurper John sensed that this stroke of good fortune might enable him to buy some sort of settlement with Constantinople and save his life. So he treated Ardabor well and offered to negotiate. 
big mistake. Ardabur's son, Aspar, when he heard his father had been captured but was still alive and well, took a few regiments of eastern cavalry and galloped down the Adriatic coast as fast as he could for Ravenna. Meanwhile, in Ravenna, as John was dispatching envoys hoping to use Ardabur as his hostage and bargaining counter, Ardabor did a superb job of turning the tables on him by persuading the Roman garrison commander in Ravenna that he stood no chance against the eastern army and should change sides. He promptly did just this, as Ardabor's son Aspar arrived with the cavalry. John was put in chains and Ardabor was released. The unfortunate John was then dispatched to Placidia at Aquileia, who was no shrinking violet and made an example of him. His right hand was cut off, then he was paraded on a donkey in the Hippodrome and finally beheaded. This horrific treatment was clearly intended to show to other would-be usurpers what happened if you dared to cross the house of Theodosius. Placidia's six-year-old son was proclaimed Emperor of the West as Valentinian III on the 23rd of October 425 in Rome itself. He was betrothed to Theodosius II's three-year-old daughter Licinia Eudocia, thereby firmly uniting the Eastern and Western empires. Galla Placidia probably took a moment to pour herself a large cup of wine to celebrate a job well done. Indeed, she was one of three women who were now ruling the Roman Empire, with Elia Pulcheria and Elia Eudocia both firmly in the driving seat in the east. But as she sipped her wine, she might have been troubled by the thought of a man who had suddenly appeared and risen to prominence by the name of Flavius Aetius. So who was this Aetius? He was a 35-year-old aristocrat, the son of a Roman general and his high-born Roman wife. He'd grown up at the imperial court and was then given an unusual experience of life when he was sent as a high-ranking hostage, first to the Goths between 405 to 408 and then to the Huns from around 408 to an unknown date. This upbringing might have broken a lesser man, but not Aetius, who seems to have taken full advantage of the opportunities to develop his skills as both a soldier and a diplomat. A contemporary source described him as a remarkable young man. Quote, Aetius was of medium height, manly in his habits and well-proportioned. He had no bodily infirmity and was spare in physique. His intelligence was keen. He was full of energy, a superb horseman, a fine shot with an arrow, and tireless with the lance. He was extremely able as a soldier and he was skilled in the arts of peace. There was no avarice in him and even less cupidity. He was magnanimous in his behaviour and never swayed in his judgment by the advice of unworthy counsellors. He bore adversity with great patience, was ready for any exacting enterprise. He scorned danger and was able to endure hunger, thirst and loss of sleep. End quote. Now, in 423, when Honorius died and the usurper John declared himself emperor, Aetius was just a senior Roman officer. 
But he had an incredibly useful asset, which was that he'd spent many years with the Huns and seemed to get on with most of the Hunnic nobility and royalty. John was desperately short of troops to fight the Eastern army and sent Aetius over the Danube to gather a Hunnic mercenary army. Aetius did just this, but not in time to save John. He arrived in northern Italy, according to one source, with 60,000 Huns, certainly a huge exaggeration, just three days after John had been executed. John had ordered him to attack the Eastern Army as it entered Italy, and he did just that before discovering that John was dead. He then negotiated a deal with Placidia, where she paid the Huns enough gold for them to return home, while giving him the position of Magister Militum in Gaul, sufficiently far away from Ravenna for the two of them to maintain a polite but cool distance. Placidia's primary task now was to manage the three main generals or magistri militum in the Western Empire. First, she had a loyal supporter in Bonifacius, who was still in North Africa. Second, she'd appointed another loyal commander called Felix in Italy to replace Castinus, who fled and, fortunately for him, just escaped the grisly fate that befell John. But her third general in Gaul, Aetius, was an unknown quantity. Placidia was a very capable woman, and she can have been in no doubt that she would have her hands full managing the situation, especially since she probably suspected that Aetius was intent on just one thing, becoming the real ruler of what was left of the Western Empire. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use, since that's the best way for me to promote this podcast. And in the next episode, which will be in two weeks' time, so on the 28th of January, we'll continue with the dramatic story of the rise of Aetius, the so-called last of the Romans. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. (laughs) 